Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. My guest today and speaking to me from Vancouver in Canada is Dove Barron. He's rated as one of the top 100 leadership speakers by Inc. magazine. And Inc. also rated his podcast as number one for Fortune 500 executives. We talk about his personal experiences, the emotional source code, pain, and how to relieve it, and why kindness is so all-important. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. Recently, a member of my own extended family were cousins, though being much younger, he calls me Uncle Mike. It's a Jamaican thing because I've known him since he was a small boy growing up in New York, but he now runs his own successful communications business. He, that's Stephen, my young cousin, introduced me. If you're listening, Stephen Steers, a big thank you. He introduced me to a thoroughly fascinating and engaging man, an Englishman originally from Manchester, though now and for many years based in Vancouver in Canada. I responded to Stephen's introduction and had a one-hour Zoom conversation with the person who is my guest today, and it was thoroughly absorbing about leadership, about emotion, and about kindness. Yes, kindness, not things that I talk about often, except in close circles of family and friends. And I enjoyed the conversation so much that I wanted to share his ideas and experiences directly with you, listeners. So I invited him onto my show. And he's Dove Barron. He's my guest today. You might not have heard of him. So here's a glimpse before you meet him. Twice named to the list of the world's top 30 global leadership gurus, listed among Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers. Inc. Magazine's also rated as the number one podcast to make you a better leader, Dove Barron Show. He is the founder and host of the podcast Leadership and Loyalty, Apple podcast number one podcast for Fortune 500 execs. He's an independent contributor to the media like CEO, World, CNN, El Italia, Entrepreneur Magazine, Medium, and Fox. He's also a best-selling author and lists among his impressive audiences as a visiting speaker to the United Nations, the World Management Forum in Iran, and the famed Servant Leadership Institute. And some of you listening might be familiar with the philosophy of Servant Leadership, and we'll talk more about that in the course of our conversation today. He's been doing extraordinary things as an advisor and consultant for over 30 years, so his track record of success is long. What he does, what he actually does, well, we'll hear more about that from him, and he, he can explain that better than me. But in very brief summary, he works with elite-level leaders in their organizations who have or seek to have an impactful influence on leadership, business, and politics. Dove Barron joins me from Vancouver today via Zoom. Welcome to the McKay interview, Dove, and thanks for making time for me. What an absolute pleasure and honor, Michael. I am I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I so enjoyed our last one. This is going to be wonderful. My only worry is that terrible thing called time that we've got so many things to talk about <laughs> and probably not enough time to do it. But, Dub, you were at pains to explain to me the crucial importance of helping individuals in leadership positions and companies that are or aspire to be market or sector leaders to find their way, to find mm. their purpose. Now, how have you found your way, Dove? I think by explaining this right at the beginning of our conversation would help describe to our listeners what it is that you actually do. Um, yeah, well, it, let's take half an hour just for that. 
<laughs> but the sort of brief summary is that for me, it all started out, uh, as we had spoken about before, Michael, I was born in Northern England. Uh, I've been gone for more than 40 years, but I was born in abject poverty and I was fascinated by why people did what they did. This was a question that drove me crazy. I, I couldn't understand why people would make decisions that were against their, against their best interest. And as a child, I would look at that and be consumed by that. And so that led me on a journey that took me across the world to different teachers around the world, to different places to study um, many different things, including metaphysical studies, but psychology, Jungian psychology, quantum physics, metaphysics, and uh, attachment theory, which then led me into the, the field of what was called excellence, today is called leadership, and began to look at what is the meaning that we aside to something. That for us to make a bad decision, we have to have given it a meaning that allows us to do that. Human beings are driven by meaning. Human beings are meaning-making machines. So when somebody does something, you go like, what is wrong with them? Come on. Everybody knows it's because there's a meaning they've associated to that thing that has justified that behavior. We call that the anatomy of meaning. The anatomy of meaning. And was this, uh, going back to when you were a younger man, was this a combination of academic study and experiential activity where you were working and doing things as opposed to just reading books and studying papers? Uh, yeah, it was a lot more than that. So I that. lived, lived, give, give, lived give me an idea of what you were doing. So I, um, first of all, I left the UK, went to New Brunswick in, yeah. in uh, Canada. There I studied with rabbis and studied uh, the Kabbalah and while studying psychology on my own, just on my own. And then from there was in Asia and Indonesia, living and studying with Buddhist monks, the Taoists and Vedanta teachers. And uh, my my main teacher for Vedanta was the dean of the, of the Vedanta University in Bombay, which is Pathasareje. And then I went on from there to study Jungian psychology, became a Jungian psychologist and really got upset with people wanting to whine and complain. <laughs> and didn't like that much so that's when when i sort of went okay i've got the spiritual metaphysical side i've got the psychological side but who's doing anything with it so i started studying like i said excellence and found that there was a lot of people who were very wealthy and very powerful but kind of lost emotionally and spiritually and feeling like and i'm not talking about getting into a religion but they were like there's something missing soulfully in what i'm doing and then i sort of stumbled into studying quantum physics um, with some teachers and from there put it all together into a thesis on quantum metapsychology and how these things come together and how it determines where our psychology comes from, how that psychology drives us. That is, that is uh, in fact, our emotional source code. How do we subjectively have an emotional basis? And from there, we extract an anatomy of meaning about anything and everything that allows us to justify a behavior. Okay, I don't, I, you, you've come on to my my second question that I had in my mind, and I don't 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 please forgive me. I don't want to sound flippant, but when, when we talked for the first time, you mentioned phrases um, mm. with which I was not familiar, mm. and you just mentioned it again emotional source code. Now, is that just fancy jargon, or does it have a base in theory and knowledge? In, in short. What is it really? Why? This is really the crux of it for me, just to get sure. the conversation going. Why is that important? And give me some examples of how you find it and when you identify it, what benefit derives from that discovery to the individual, the organization, or the corporation? 
Great questions. Really great questions. So first of all, it has a, a basis in several areas that are tied together. So of course, psychology, but also in neuroscience, understanding how the neuroscience of your psychology works. So it's putting that and then so now we've got Jungian psychology, we've got neuroscience coming into that and then attachment theory, how those three things come together, then into um, behavioral uh, analysis. So profiling and behavioral analysis. So all that is that's big stuff. But let's break it down. What does it mean? And how does it come about? When something happens in your childhood, and when I say your childhood, what we call the formative years, it can happen later, but mostly it's there. When that something happens that has an emotional impact on you, there is an imprint. So we take that to mean something. It has an emotional, and then we go, okay, so that means this. Now, so the way to think of it is this. If I say to you, Michael, what is two plus two? You will say four. Four, of course, that's the rational, logical answer. Mm. But because of an emotional source code, two plus two might equal a giraffe. It might equal rage. It might equal, you know, bliss. So what it else. is, yeah. So what yeah. it is is we've added things together. So for instance, uh, just let me give you a personal example. And I'd like to be a little bit more vulnerable about this because I think it will help people to understand. Um, I. I'm going to tell you a very personal story and it's kind of funny, but it's also insightful. So yeah. uh, my wife and I were, when we were first dating, we were out on a date. Uh, she said to me, Oh, this friend of ours, Colin wants to go out on a date. I was like, okay, cool. And, and she goes, uh, I said, how come? And he says, well, he wants us to meet his new girlfriend. Now, Colin was a guy who never had a girlfriend for more than 10 minutes. Yeah. So the fact that he wanted us to meet this girl was very exciting. So, Oh yeah, I definitely want to meet somebody he's fallen in love with. We go out on this evening, we have dinner and on the way home, my wife says to me, girlfriend, my girlfriend at the time says to me, what did you think of her? And I go, she was so sexy. And I, my wife goes, looks at me and goes, really? Oh yeah. She was really sexy. And my wife's like, I, I don't understand. She goes, I, I know you like exotic women, and she wasn't exotic. She, I go, no, but she's Mediterranean, and that's a good, you know, that's good. Yeah. Oh, okay. And you like women, you like women, curvy women. And, I, and she goes, she's not curvy. And I go, no, but she's an athlete, and she's got sweeps in her muscles. And, and my wife goes, yeah. I don't understand, because you said two things there that you kind of, that are kind of second best, and you said she was really sexy. Why was she really <laughs> sexy? And I said, because she was freaking crazy. Yeah. And my wife said, so if you were single, you'd date her? I go, oh, no, absolutely not. But 10 years ago, I'd have married her because she fit my emotional source code. Two plus two equals love. Yeah. Two, what is the two plus two? Crazy, right? Equals love. In my, so from my source code, because of my emotional source code, At that my time. meaning, because my, my mother was emotionally very unstable when I was a child. I see. Yeah. And I was in charge of taking care of her and helping her to feel good. So I would look for these women. So my wife said, would you date her now? I go, absolutely not. No interest. But by recognizing my source code, I can recognize the pull. Yeah. So your pull might be to recognize that you're going, oh, I keep making these bad decisions in this area. Might not be around relationships. Mm. In this area, why do I keep doing that? Because there's an emotional source code there that has given you an anatomy of meaning for making decisions that are in disservice to where you want to go. Okay, I think I, think I follow you on that. 
listeners, my guest today is Dove Barron, a top and globally recognized expert advisor on leadership, especially among elite and high performers. And he's talking to me from Vancouver via Zoom. Uh, Dove, about six years ago, I had on my show Dr. Aki Hinser, medical doctor and counselor to high performance excuse me, sportsmen like Formula One racing drivers, Team McLaren, and to business leaders at the very top of their game. He very sadly passed away a few years ago, but his legacy of helping high-performance people under intense pressure lives on in the company that still carries his name. Now, you too have important views and experiences on achieving and managing success, and many of your clients are high flyers and top leaders of companies and organizations. Here's my question. What can you say about those conversations uh, that you have with them without breaking confidences. I'm particularly interested in learning more about what you told me when we first spoke regarding pain and addiction. Now, it's a long thread, Dub, but we have a little time. So please put into context for me and our listeners. Yeah, so it's a great question. Thank you, Michael, for asking it, because I think it's one of the things that um, is really unique about emotional source code is it allows us to understand what drives human beings. So when we look at the, the most successful people in the world, we're often like, what do they have? What is it? Because oftentimes they don't seem that special. So how did they do that? And the answer is this, and I want you to think of it in layers. So success, and we're talking about extraordinary success, is at the top. That's glaring. It's obvious to the world. Behind that success is pain. Behind, uh, sorry, is the ego, rather. Sorry, excuse me. Is the ego. So high-level success, ego, and then pain. This drives people forward. This is what drives people forward. So human beings are driven by two primary forces, the desire to get away from and the desire to move towards. So away from and towards. Towards is a weaker motivation. So you set a goal and you're moving towards it. That's powerful, but it's a short-term motivator. But away from is a long-term motivator. So many successful people are actually addicted to their success. Now, we're taking, we talked about neuroscience earlier. There is a whole set of neurochemicals that are released from the hypothalamus, which is a part of your brain. And that part of your brain uh, controls mood and appetite. That part sorry, of your brain... Mood, mood and appetite, you said. Yeah. Yeah. Mood, I didn't hear mood what you and said. appetite. Yeah. yeah, sorry. So mood and appetite. It's also the center for addiction. So if something uh, lifts our mood up, we are now prone to more addiction behavior of it. Now, let, when I talk about addiction, we're not talking about heroin or cocaine or the traditional things one thinks of, or, you know, even smoking or alcohol. We're talking about the brain's need for something. Every human being is an addict, and we need to understand that we can all potentially be addicted. But what we're most addicted to, and this is the pause, what we're most addicted to is easing our pain. So when you look around, you know, you talked about this in the intro, when you look around the world, it's easy to judge other people. It's easy to be unkind to the person you pass with a needle in their arm and say, loser. But the truth of the matter is, we're all addicted to easing our pain. Some of us do it by becoming Formula One winners. Some of us do it by, by amassing billions of dollars. Some of us do it by sticking a needle in our arm. Some of us do it by going to church and volunteering. There are a million ways to do it. And you say that this is in the brain more than in the, in the body as such. Yeah, so what happens is it's, it's the brain responding 
to the to the requirement to ease the pain. So the success is actually a way to try and ease the pain that I am feeling unconsciously until I become aware of it. That's what the emotional source code work is. It's like, well, let's find out what's driving it because maybe you can go about getting the things you want, the, uh, the outcomes you want in a much less painful way. And that is always the case. No, so it, like I sorry, said, the order, is, the order is success, ego, pain. The, the ego is hiding the pain and the success is hiding the ego. Now, sometimes we can see the ego very clearly through the success, but that's really a cover up for the pain. When we get to that, then we can say, well, what if we met that in a way that really served us? So that is when we get into purpose. And just to explain purpose very slightly, and then we can jump back, is this. Purpose is simply a way to give the world the very thing you needed, although the form may have changed. Say that again, please. Purpose is? Yeah. Purpose is a way to give the world what it is that you subjectively needed, even though the form may change. I see. So if you're on purpose, you're giving the world what it is that you needed, even though it might not look the same. Okay. And just going back uh, briefly to addiction, I, I always thought that addiction was something where you essentially had to keep on increasing whatever it is you're taking in order to maintain the same level of, let's call it release of pain, bliss, happiness, whatever you want to call it. And and, 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 that, and that's really the true meaning of addiction, whereas um, some things that you take, like, say, cigarettes, you don't necessarily mean to keep on increasing the amount of nicotine and, that you take. I mean, is that a misunderstanding on my part? Uh, no, it's with a, heroin, it, heroin or the other stuff? It's not a misunderstanding. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's just more to it. So more the simplicity of it is this, is that all addiction is created in the brain. That's a fact, not my opinion. That's yeah. science. Now, what do we know about that is that there is something called tachyphalasis. Mm. Tachyphalasis, for those of you who don't understand what that is, is the brain's adaptation to any drug. Meaning, as you just said, the more you have of it, the more you need of it. Right. The first time you had cocaine, you might have had a tiny little line and you were, oh, you know, like, and you wanted to go for three days and then you become addicted and you need 20 times that amount just to feel normal. So if you are using things, as in things in the world, let's say success, you make your first million, you get that high, and suddenly you forget about your pain, and it's like, great, now I am significant. I don't feel that pain of insignificance. I don't feel that pain, even though I was born into this multi-generational family of wealth, and I always felt insignificant. Now I've proved myself. But then it's like, hmm, that's worn off. I must, I must need more. So I'll go for five, then 10 million, then 100 million, then a billion. And it still doesn't go away because you have to keep increasing that drug, as you just said. And it's worn off. And you've seen this in, in these people at that level, have you? Well, this, I yeah. see this a lot. a lot. So the people who come to me are the people who've been to therapists, they've been to coaches, they've been to those people. And they say, many of them even been on a spiritual path. And they say, something's missing and I don't know what it is. Um, it's, it, I don't need to be more successful. So what is it that's missing? And so one of the things I say is my work is never focused on you being more successful, but in, invariably 
you will become way more successful, but it will come from a place of meaning and purpose that will allow you to serve in the world, to be a servant leader, to serve in the world while healing your own pain and serving the world, giving them what you what it is that you needed. There's something else I wanted to ask you. I've been mulling it over since we spoke some some weeks ago, and maybe the answer is, is, is simple, and I'm just making too mm. much of it, but I'd like to hear what you say. I, I know you have very strong views based on your own personal experience of kindness mm. and of being kind to others. So tell me more about this. Tell me how kindness actually works, especially, and this particularly interests me, having spent many, many years in corporate life, especially in the upper echelons of organizations, I stress the upper echelons, where human emotions can often be warped, to put it mildly, by power relationships, greed, jealousy, and vaulting personal ambition. Where does kindness fit in there? Um, that's a great question because uh, I think at the simplest level, it is essential. So it's a strong you know, word to uh, use, though essential. I mean, it is a strong word, yeah. and it's and it's and it's an important word um, because as we look around the world today, as we record this in 2022, we look around the world and we see a divided world. We see high comp competitive behavior, and we see a, a cutthroat mentality. And this, in many ways, you know, if you if you interviewed the top leaders in the world in 1990 and asked them what was your most influential book, they would probably say Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead, which were Ayn Rand's books. This is the birth of neoliberal um, economics. And it really was ruthless. And in many ways, it's Gordon Gekko's speech um, in, on Wall Street where he talked about greed being good. We have seen the aftermath of that. We are living in the aftermath of that and in a greatly unequalized world. Now, do I think, am I in favor of capitalism? I am, I'm a capitalist. But there is such a thing as conscious capitalism and conscious capitalism comes from understanding kindness that we, you know, you can't ask somebody to lift themselves up by their bootstraps if they don't even have boots. So the thing to understand around this is everybody, everybody you meet is in some kind of pain. And if you operate your business and you operate looking at even your clients and the people you serve and the industries you serve and the people who work with you as everybody's in pain and my job is to help them with that pain, then you move automatically into a kindness mentality. When you move into that kindness mentality, you actually get to serve your audience. You get to serve your client base. You actually grow your business, but you get to do it from a place of purpose. Kindness is essential. When we forget kindness, we lose our humanity. We and obviously these things start, else. sorry, these things obviously start at the individual level. They must do. But uh, are you saying that, as is the case nowadays, increasingly, these things can be manifest in a corporate sense by philanthropic organizations, philanthropic programs? Or this isn't new. It goes back to the time of Andrew Carnegie and even before in the United States where very wealthy people gave a lot of money, whether to appease their conscience or whatever, but they left lasting benefits. I mean, I just want to understand how that translates from, you know, John or Mary doing good and being kind to an institution or an organization being kind. Do you yeah, see what I'm trying so, to say? Absolutely, I yeah. do. So let's, let's start at the, at the context of leadership rather than organization. So leadership, when, when, when people ask me in interviews, define leadership, I go, it's very simple. Leadership is the example. 
You're a parent. You have to think of yourself as a parent. If you're leading an organization, you're a parent. Don't tell your kids not to smoke while you've got a cigarette in your mouth. Don't tell your kids to drink while you're sipping on a scotch. Right? So it's the same thing. You're a parent. You're leading by example. So that the kindness has to start there. But moreover, we're not talking about philanthropic behavior, although that's very important. We're talking about institutional kindness. We're talking about inherent kindness inside of an organization. So if you look at uh, Daniel Lubetzky uh, of uh, the Kind Organization, which is Kind Bars, um, uh, I'm in an organization with Daniel and with some many other very high-powered individuals, and it's all about understanding that it starts with us. It starts with us who are leading the world. It starts with us as organizations. So how can I employ kindness in my business in a way that lets people know they belong. See, the human being wants to belong, and we trade our authenticity for the approval of a group. This is how we end up doing terrible things. We trade our authenticity for the, for the approval of the group. But however, if we stop making people fit in, but rather show them how they belong by showing them kindness, People will go with the direction you want them to go because they will see it's inherent to their soul. They'll see it's inherent to the difference they want to make in the world. I agree with you, and um, but I think in a way it's simplicity and the profoundness of it uh, belies how difficult that is actually to do in an organization. <laughs> so that's, I think that's it's clear. difficult. I think it's difficult if you if you're operating from a place of of thinking that the 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 bottom line is 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 the bottom line, meaning it's about money. And this is always the mistake. I had a conversation two days ago with David Novak, and I, can't, I got permission to use his name, with David Novak. David Novak is, was the head of Yum Brands, which is a $34 billion market capital organization, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, et cetera. There's a group of them, the largest franchise in the world. And one of the things that he, he and I talked about was that if you don't make kindness part of the business, why would it exist there? You have to install yeah. it into the business. And that. he goes, and, he, and one of the things he said very clearly was that leadership development around kindness and around growing people is the most useful, most effective, most efficient use of your time because it doesn't only grow your people, it grows your business. If you grow your people, you grow your business. So you have to have kindness. Okay. Yeah. I just want to have one more, one more question. It's the last question because um, um, we're moving to the end of our conversation. And this is, in a way, a, a slightly different take on what you've been saying. I've listened to you more. And the more I listen to you, the more I have a strong feeling that you set great store in authenticity, Dove, in the genuineness of feelings and relationships. So what are your insights? In a very specific sense, what are your insights into what seems to me the increasing self-obsession of some people these days has manifested in the dramatic growth of influencers, in inverted commas, on social media, for example? I mean, it's not new, as you know, that celebrities endorse brands. But new media and technology have taken this to a much higher level. Is it a bubble mm. that will soon burst? And what will the consequences be for brands, trademarks, and their messages? And does it really matter in the long run? What do you think? It's a great question because we, you're absolutely right. We are living in that time. Um, and I think that... First of all, there's a lot of talk about authenticity. It's this word that's been elevated in incredible ways and actually removed it from every piece of literature I have for that reason, because um, what is authentic? Well, my phone is an authentic phone. 
right? So this is authentic plastic or authentic whatever. It's, it's a silly word because it's lost its meaning, which is often the case. So rather than looking at things as being authentic, let's look at things as being soulful. And I don't mean that in a religious sense. I mean that as in connected to a greater understanding of myself and a greater understanding of others. So, yeah, of course, it, we as human beings are going to be influenced by celebrity. That's part of how we've been conditioned over the last hundred years. However, let us be influenced by kindness. Let us be influenced by generosity. Let us be influenced by the desire of those to serve. Let us be influenced by that. And let us understand this. And this is one of the things that's key in, in kindness is that no human being is single faceted. No human being is just what you see on the surface. If we look at the celebrities, let's look very quickly at Robin Williams, one of my heroes. Robin Williams suffered greatly with depression. He, in his early days, he was a drug addict. He was an incredible human being who did incredible things, but there were multiple facets to him. When we understand that about each other, we can treat each other with kindness. And that changes the way we look at celebrity. It changes all of those things. It changes the way we look at ourselves and stop presenting who you think you should be and rather present the truth of who you are, including your struggles, just especially parting, now in this post-pandemic time. Just one parting uh, comment, Dove, as you mentioned, Robin Williams and, uh, and people who make us laugh, it's often the case that uh, successful comedians are often tragic people. I, I can think of many examples in the UK of these people. Uh, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Any comments with your insights into um, neuroscience and psychology as to why yeah, I, comedians and clowns, in a way, make uh, have these sad um, lives? Yeah, it's right back to what I said before, is that it, it's the emotional source code and it's mm -hmm. the it's the anatomy of meaning. So what does it mean? It means that they're giving the world the thing they need. They're giving the world the very thing they need. They need to be able to laugh and to smile. And very often, as we talked about, success hides the ego and the ego hides the pain. And you see that very often in those high-performing individuals. And if you look at somebody like Jim Carrey, who people think went a little bit nuts, <laughs> no, no, Jim Carrey got real. Jim Carrey realized, oh, this is a game. And I don't want to play the game anymore. I'm out. I'm not playing the game. I know why I was doing it now. I understand my own mental ill health and I want to come back. And that's that what happened. Something... I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I know who yeah. Jim Carrey is and I've seen his movies years ago, but he's, he's, he's left showbiz and all that yeah. stuff now. Is he? I didn't know that. Yeah. No, he talks about it for what it is. He says, yeah. I wish everybody could have fame for 15 minutes so they would see it's not what you think it is. <laughs> yeah. It's not the cure. Well, Dove, you're right at the beginning. We certainly wouldn't have a sufficient time, but it's been absolutely <laughs> fascinating. I thank you for making time for me. I found the conversation even more absorbing than I thought I would. My guest today, joining me from Vancouver in Canada, has been Dove Barron, the internationally recognized advisor on leadership and elite and high-performance individuals and organizations, and an advisor to multi-generational family business. Dove, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. And if you anybody wants to know more about me, you can find me on the web. Just search D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N. And you know what, Michael, it's been a pleasure and honor. Thank you so much. I think there's uh, more to talk gift. about on another occasion. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.